Poltergeist is a landmark film in many respects. For one thing, it's a perennial favorite, the movie that, traditionally, parents start their kids off when they're introducing them to the horror genre. It's scary enough, and 38 years later, it holds up remarkably well. So well, in fact, that when a remake came out a few years ago, everyone just kind of shrugged. What's the point of remaking a movie that's pretty much perfect? But while the finished project ended up making the film a classic, the film's production was fraught with never-ending stories of fighting directors, spooky happenings on the set, and some real tragedy after filming that left the movie feeling cursed, even if, arguably, it's this quote-unquote curse that makes everyone so eager to revisit it. It has notoriety. It feels like a dangerous film. So join us while we try to figure out what the fuck happened to Poltergeist. So let's go back to the beginning. The year was 1977 and Steven Spielberg was riding high off the success of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Famously, the aliens in that film were benevolent, but what if they were evil? Spielberg went so far as to get a treatment written by John Sayles, which was described by many as straw dogs with aliens, and they even built a working prototype of the lead alien. But after working on Raiders of the Lost Ark and killing Nazis for a year, Spielberg felt the need to return to tranquility and poured some of his ideas into E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which famously featured another very nice alien. He then went to Texas Chainsaw Massacre director Toby Hooper with the idea of Hooper taking over Night Skies, which is what they were calling the treatment at the time. But apparently, he had no interest in aliens and urged Spielberg to consider the supernatural instead. Spielberg ended up co-writing the Poltergeist script with Michael Grace and Mark Victor, and probably would have directed the film if he hadn't already been committed to making E.T. But Spielberg was a rather hands-on producer throughout the whole thing. And that's where our controversy begins. For years and years, people have been saying Steven Spielberg really directed Poltergeist, and that Hooper was only hired as a way for Spielberg to get around a clause in his universal contract that didn't allow him to direct two movies at once. Indeed, Spielberg himself cast the film and did many of the storyboards, while some say he also directed the actors, although others have said that's not the case. It was enough of a controversy that the Directors Guild of America opened an investigation into the film, although, in the end, their decision, definitively, is that Hooper was indeed the director of the film. Steven Spielberg himself later said, Toby isn't a take-charge kind of guy. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would nod agreement, and that became the process of our collaboration. Producer Frank Marshall, for his part, put it this way, the creative force of the movie was Steven. Toby was the director and was on set every day, but Spielberg did the design for every storyboard and was only absent for three days during the shoot because he was in Hawaii with George Lucas. And finally, Spielberg, worried about the rumors, sent Hooper a note writing, Regrettably, some of the press has misunderstood the rather unique creative relationship you and I shared throughout the making of Poltergeist. I enjoyed your openness in allowing me, as a writer and a producer, a wide berth for creative involvement just as I know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct Poltergeist so wonderfully. Through the screenplay, you accepted a vision of this very intense movie from the start, and as the director, you delivered the goods. You perform responsibly and professionally throughout, and I wish you great success on your next project. Now, 
Whatever happened on the set, Poltergeist shaped up particularly well, with Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson, then mostly unknowns, striking critics as believable, grounded performers who made the horror aspects of the plot work particularly well. Williams had made an impact in a part as Dustin Hoffman's girlfriend in Kramer vs. Kramer before a small part that mostly wound up on the cutting room floor in the Christopher Walken mercenary flick The Dogs of War. One wonders if this is the movie that brought her to the attention of Spielberg, as The Dogs of War featured Paul Freeman, who went on to play Bellic in Raiders in a memorable supporting part. Probably her most prominent role before Poltergeist was as Gene Wilder's love interest in the smash hit Stir Crazy. Oddly, Stir Crazy also gave Craig T. Nelson one of his first roles as a sadistic prison guard who tortures Wilder and Richard Pryor, and antagonists were quickly becoming his specialty after sparring with Al Pacino in the courtroom in And Justice for All and with Goldie Hawn in the comedy smash Private Benjamin. Lucky for him, Joe Beth Williams apparently had fond memories of working with him on Stir Crazy and actually recommended him to Steven Spielberg, and here he got to play arguably his first truly sympathetic roles. Everyone remembers the kid stars from Poltergeist the best, particularly Heather O'Rourke, who became iconic as the young Carol Ann Freeling. She was apparently cast by Spielberg after he discovered her when he was visiting MGM Studios. Oliver Robbins, who played Robbie Freeling, was cast out of an open call, and in some ways, an experience he had on the set was one of the first clues that something wicked was in the air. In the film, Robbins is memorably strangled by an animatronic clown, and apparently, when the film was being shot, the clown contraption got caught around his neck, choking him for real, with Robbins saying Spielberg himself rescued him when he got wind of what was happening. See what I mean about Spielberg always being on the set? Some of the other performers, including Zelda Rubinstein as spiritual medium Tangina Behrens, would become iconic, and Rubinstein was actually a spiritual medium herself, apparently. Legendary gore moments such as the one where the university paranormal investigators had a nightmare that he was tearing his face off with the hands belonging to Spielberg himself would also become infamous, and it resulted in the movie almost getting an R rating. But Spielberg was able to argue them down to a PG, as no PG-13 existed at the time, and funny enough, it would become another Steven Spielberg movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, not to mention Gremlins, which he produced, that would finally get the MPAA to create this new rating. Back to the so-called curse. Richard Lawson, who played one of the parapsychologists, became famous later in life by becoming Beyonce Knowles' stepdad. Apparently, he also had a freak near-death experience with him having survived a plane crash that killed half of the passengers on board. Weirder still, Lawson was apparently recognized by a ticket agent on the way into his flight, and after he gave a guy his autograph, he was upgraded to first class. The person who took his original seat in coach was one of the people who died. One of the most controversial gore moments comes towards the end of the film, where Joe Beth Williams is stuck in a swimming pool with skeletons that, it turned out, were real. It's hard to imagine something like this happening nowadays, and hard to figure what the motivation was, given that the whole film revolves around a family moving into a home that's cursed because it's built on violated sacred land. However, none of this was probably that unusual for 1980s Hollywood, and the fact is, this story would have probably never really become a thing had the following not happened. You see, when Poltergeist hit theaters in June of 1982, only a week before E.T., it was a major hit, bringing in over $76 million, pretty big for 1982. It quickly became a cultural phenomenon. I've been watching, I was watching Poltergeist last month. I got a question. Why don't white people just leave the house when there's a ghost in the house? Y'all stay in the house too fucking long. Get the fuck out of the house. But... 
What really cemented it in the pop culture stems from a legitimate tragedy that happened just a few months after the movie opened when Dominic Dunn, who played the oldest Freeling daughter, was murdered by her boyfriend. And in what was seen as a shocking miscarriage of justice, he only served three years in jail for manslaughter despite the best efforts of Dunn's famous dad, author Dominic Dunn, who later became a victim's right advocate and in fact covered the O.J. Simpson trial and was there every single day. The result was an association all involved were likely eager to escape. Thus, in the sequel, Poltergeist 2, the Dunn character is never referred to at all. The Freelings had three kids, now they only have two. But the Poltergeist curse wasn't done with anyone involved with the franchise, with the tragic, untimely deaths of many involved in the films becoming all the more apparent as the series went on, with the most tragic of them all being the death of young Heather O'Rourke, herself dying at only 12 years old shortly after the filming of the third film in the series, one which coincidentally or not, she was the only returning cast member other than Zelda Rubinstein. For a long time, people also mistakenly believed that young Oliver Robbins also died young, but he's still alive and in fact is working on a documentary called The Poltergeist Curse. The fates of two other actors from the second installment, Will Sampson and Julian Beck, also contribute to this legacy, but those are stories for what the fuck happened to Poltergeist 2. Curse or not, Poltergeist endures as a classic, and whenever a horror film connects in the way that it did, there's always a cult that pops up behind it, similar to The Exorcist and The Shining. Whatever the case, though, it proved to be a great film for the two adult stars, Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson. Williams went on to star in The Big Chill and has had an excellent career, while Nelson became iconic as the star of the long-running sitcom Coach, and Craig T. Nelson is still in demand as a character actor well into his 70s. Both, to an extent, seem to have fun with Poltergeist fans when asked about the curse. In a recent Reddit AMA, Joe Beth Williams wrote, Scariest thing happened to me during Poltergeist shooting. Well, because we were supposed to be scared so much, I think everyone's nerves were hypersensitive. I didn't live in LA then, so I was in a rented apartment, and I began to notice that every night when I would come home from shooting, exhausted, fried, the pictures on the walls would be crooked, and I would straighten them, and then the next day I would come in, and the pictures would be crooked again. That always made me feel a little bit nervous about the place I was staying. But I finally realized that when I slammed the door closed to leave, the pictures would shift because I slammed the door. Doesn't sound like much of a curse to me. For his part, Nelson has always commented more often on things that happened on the set of the second film, with him stating there was some very bad energy in the certain place that they filmed, and indeed, some very creepy things happened on the set of that one. And of course, we'll get to that in What the Fuck Happened to Poltergeist 2. While it's unlikely the curse had anything to do with it, Toby Hooper's career seemingly never recovered from the stories that emerged from Spielberg's involvement on set, with people just kind of assuming for years that Spielberg actually directed the movie. Still, his career did get a boost after, with him signing a three-movie deal with Canon Films that resulted in three fun movies that all unfortunately flopped. There was The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which got an X rating and had to be cut down to an R, Life Force with Naked Space Vampires, and the remake of Invaders from Mars, which sadly ended his time on the A-list. Although Steven Spielberg... Well, I guess he did okay. Even if the events that took place on the set of Twilight Zone the movie, which came out the next year, had some wondering whether or not the Poltergeist curse had touched him too, to some degree. In the end, Poltergeist ranks as one of the great horror films with tremendous pace, creepy gore, visceral thrills, and an outstanding score by Jerry Goldsmith that's one of the best in horror history. In hindsight, it was too successful for Hollywood to leave alone, although Spielberg himself seemed to have his fill after the first film. 
MGM, back in the 80s, was pretty cash-strapped and in need of another franchise. So, in 1986, Brian Gibson, who directed the music video for Styx's Mr. Roboto, was brought on to direct a sequel, which did well enough for MGM to greenlight a second low-budget sequel, Poltergeist 3, before spinning the show off into a TV series that ran into the 90s called Poltergeist The Legacy. Despite its name, it had virtually nothing to do with the films and revolved around a team of heroes fighting the occult week after week. It ran a few seasons, but is now mostly forgotten. Yet, MGM again tried to give the franchise new life by doing a big-budget remake of the original, imaginatively titled Poltergeist. And this was produced by Sam Raimi's Ghost House Productions and had Gil Keenan, director of the pretty good animated film Monster House, as a director. Able to attract a high-pedigree cast, which included Sam Rockwell, Rosemary DeWitt, and Jared Harris, and despite better-than-expected reviews, the movie underperformed at the box office. Although, once again, there are talks to reboot the property with none other than the Russo brothers attached. Until next time, everybody, this is Chris Mumray for Arrow in the Head, and this is What the Fuck Happened to Poltergeist. <laughs>